Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, three founders of AgTech startups discuss their innovative solutions in the fields of climate-resilient crops, biofertilizer, and water harvesting. Brendan from Avalo explains how machine learning is used to identify desirable traits in plant genomes. Franco from Punabio discusses the use of extreme microbes to create biofertilizer. Dr. Ramadan Borayek from Drip AI explains the passive technology behind their hydro panel that harvests water from the air. The founders also discuss the challenges of raising funds and the importance of investing in deep tech solutions to cope with growing food in challenging climate conditions. This conversation is moderated by Marina Schmidt, founder and editor-in-chief, Red to Green Solutions. My pleasure to host this exciting panel. I'm delighted to have three fantastic founders here and cover such a broad range of solutions, including seeds, fertilizer, and water. Really important issues. I'm going to quickly introduce our panelists. Brendan Collins is co-founder and CEO of Avalo AI, a startup that is using machine learning and AI to design climate-resilient crops. Their technology simulates changes in plant genomes. Basically, it enables researchers to find and breed desirable traits like heat and drought resistance in two to three years instead of the usual 15 years. They have raised three million so far. Our second panelist is Franco Martinez-Levis, the co-founder and CEO of Puna Bio, which uses extremophiles to help crops adapt to dry, salty, degraded soils of the near future. Extremophiles are microbes that thrive in extreme conditions, which means that these are microbes that can be used to produce biofertilizers, increase crop yields, and protect crops from extreme weather. Puna Bio has raised 3.7 million to date. Then our third panelist is Dr. Ramadan Borayek. He is the CTO and co-founder of Drip AI, developing a hydro panel that harvests water from thin air at utility scale. The technology is passive, meaning it doesn't require energy inputs, and it yields up to five times cheaper water than tap water. The company is based in Singapore and has received seed funding so far. On the Red to Green podcast, I usually start out with the red part, the problem, to then go to the green part, the solution. But in this case, I'm not going to bash on about the issues in our agricultural system. We can probably agree we need to tackle eroding soils, harder climate challenges, and water becoming a scarcer resource. I will briefly talk to each panelist individually to dive a bit deeper into their solution. And then afterwards, we'll do a fire round of questions uh, to see and check in with them on their investment situation and their personal founding situation. Let's start at the base of it, where it all starts with the seed. So we will start with Avalo. And my first question is, achieving drought tolerance and increasing yields is actually very complex because mm -hmm. conventional breeding methods take a lot of time and money. And there are so many genes involved in achieving something like increased drought tolerance. A genome-wide association study may find that there are hundreds of genes of interest that could be important for this change. And 
Brendan, you are able to narrow it down to sometimes up to a dozen. How mm -hmm. does your method determine which genes are truly associated with the desired trait? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I think genomics as a whole is really traditionally just like a difficult data problem. And the type of data that you have is, you know, traditionally really tricky in the sense that it's very fat instead of very long. So you have very few individuals, but you're looking at millions of markers across the entire genome. And so to actually like deal with that, the statistical tools that you traditionally have are very limited. And so what you have is the GWAS, which is really just like a linear regression at each of those positions in the genome. Um, and so that's why it's really prone to these false positives. So you actually get something like a 2% uh, true discovery rate in a GWAS versus, you know, so you're letting in thousands to several thousands of false positives per true discovery that you get. Um, but there are really good statistical methods out there that can deal with this level of data. And that's really machine learning. You know, these machine learning models are really good at taking in tons and tons of data and being able to uh, make inferences and try and uh, discover what's connected between those different data points across those millions of markers. But traditionally, these machine learning models are black box models, and you can't really understand what they're actually relying on to make their inferences. Um, but luckily, there's been some really, really good researchers recently that have developed new mathematical models to actually be able to probe those machine learning models in really clever ways. And so we're really lucky that one of our scientific advisors, Cynthia Rudin, is you know one of the originators of this idea of interpretable machine learning. And we're actually the first company to be able to apply interpretable machine learning to the entire genome. Uh, and so what that allows us to do is really apply, create a new model that fits the entire genome and all these different data points into this and then actually probe it in a really clever way to come up with the actual causal basis of each of these traits. What does this probing actually look like? Yeah, so what we're actually able to do, it's this little diving a little into actually machine learning theory, but we're able to fit an entire model to the entire genome. And then position by position, we substitute fake data in at that position to actually see how much the output of the model changes. And so if we're going position by position, um, and we substitute this fake data in and the model output doesn't change very much, we know that position in the genome really isn't that important to contributing to the output. So a real world example of what we've been working on is we've been designing this broccoli for indoor cultivation. So broccoli traditionally heads in 120 days. Um, it's a really long, not profitable crop for farmers. Um, but what we've been trying to do is develop this variety that will head in under 45 days. So um, 45 days is really important for indoor farmers because no pest cycle is shorter than 45 days. And so if you can harvest in less than 45 days, then you don't actually have to worry about pests in your, in your system. And so in days to harvest is also becoming a really important trait as farmers go further north where uh, seasons are actually much shorter. And so we were able to follow our predictive breeding program in broccoli, and we were actually able to show that we can get 77% more genetic gain per breeding cycle. And so we actually have a variety of broccoli that we've developed that now heads in 41 days. Let's keep going with Puna Bio. Franco, you have chosen to study what I would call the OGs of the microbes. So the ones that can withstand the hardest conditions and still, as you once mentioned in an interview, not just survive, but actually thrive. Um, 
how are you using these extremophiles as raw material to produce biofertilizer? Thank you for, for the question. Actually, exactly these extremophiles um, were actually the first inhabitants on the planet when, when there was no atmosphere that was livable for plants, animals. Uh, these extremophiles were the ones that were responsible for creating uh, this atmosphere. There was no ozone layer before. So actually what happens is that these microbes are very efficient in not only utilizing uh, a few nutrients that are available, but actually making symbiotic relationships with plants in order to help plants use also nutrients in a better way. So what we are doing is using particular strains that we uh, select, uh, isolate, and then formulate in order to create the next generation of biofertilizers and actually some other products such as uh, biocontrol, biofungicides, um, among others. But then the extremophiles are just the raw material, right? So what do you actually do with them to get to a biofertilizer? Is, is it maybe also about which combination of extremophiles you use and what else you add to it? Actually, it starts way before. Um, it's not only a, a scaling problem or a production problem. Uh, it starts with the research. So one of uh, my co-founders spent 20 years uh, investigating this, the highest and driest uh, desert on earth, La Puna, uh, between Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia, and understanding, first you have to understand where uh, do you have to prospect. These are high altitude deserts above 4,000 meters above sea level. Then you have to understand which samples are the most um, effective in order to get to these new microbes. Um, once you have that, you go to the lab. And in the lab, you combine both bioinformatics uh, tools, but also biochemical assays in order to assess which ones are the most effective candidates for different crops. Then we go to greenhouse stage. In the greenhouse stage, you start testing the matching, actually. Is, is this a hypothesis that I had from these microbes actually work well when I match them with the crops? Then we go to uh, field trials, right? We have to test that what we did in control conditions actually reflects in uh, regular farming conditions. And finally, it comes also to developing the formulation around it. Once you have the, and this happens also in, in parallel sometimes to the field trials, basically you have to understand how this microbe that you have that might be the best microbe in terms of, for instance, uh, nitrogen, fixation or phosphorus solubilization, just to say a couple effects, you have to understand how that microbe can most effectively uh, colonize uh, the roots and, and make this symbiotic relationship with the plant. This is very tied to growth of this microbe in a formulation in a media. And then you have to understand how to make it shelf stable and how to make it, um, you know, be shelf stable at regular temperatures, not only obviously refrigerated for the economics uh, that, that that would imply. So what we do is the whole process from the prospection, isolation, characterization, testing, and finally developing the formulation in order to create from these microbes, create products that could be seed treatments, could be foliar applications or infra as well. So if I understand you correctly, uh, you have these microbes, you maybe have additional inputs in the fertilizer, which support the microbes, it's shelf stable, but then, um, how does it relate like how is it compared to nitrogen fertilizer for example do you have to apply it regularly is it just a one-off thing um maybe you can draw some comparisons here 
Perfect. Yeah, so it, it, it actually depends. As I mentioned, there are, for instance, seed treatments, which focus on a one-time application at the moment of planting, but there, we're also working on foliar applications to further sustain uh, the health of the crops during the um, different stages of the growth. Um, how it compares to nitrogen fertilizers, um, there are mainly three categories. One is carbon emissions. Nitrogen fertilizers are responsible for about 5% of global carbon emissions. Um, biofertilizers probably emit, I, I won't say the exact number, but it's between 98 to 99% less uh, carbon emissions than a regular nitrogen fertilizer. Um, also, in terms of cost, this is not an area where we expect to have a green premium. Uh, Biofertilizers can be uh, not only at cost parity, but can actually lead to 50% cost reduction compared to regular nitrogen fertilizers. We won't replace all of the nitrogen fertilizer right now. I mean, currently the claims uh, of most the leading companies are to replace more or less 20% of the global uh, nitrogen usage at the moment, uh, but that is a huge contribution to reduction in carbon emissions. Um, and finally, there's the question of efficacy. Um, we need to create products that are this, have the same level of efficacy and, as, and understanding as the nitrogen, regular nitrogen fertilizer. Right now, we actually waste almost half of the nitrogen fertilizer that is applied to soils. And this is a technology that has been going on for more than 100 years. We're still in the first, let's say, 20 years of biofertilization and, and the latest developments in uh, not only AI, but understanding on genomics and the cost reduction that all of these processes have had are creating this wave that is much faster to gain much more information. So I think that um, actually the biofertilizers will get to the same level of understanding and uh, efficacy levels as the current solutions, current chemical solutions in much less time. Yeah, I also was talking recently to people from Bayer, uh, Germany, and they said because in Germany there are a lot of restrictions on traditional um, pesticide use and fertilizer use, that is the, ne the needed push that will drive them towards exploring biofertilizers, which are not yet at the same capacity, but of course, this is something that develops. Um, super exciting, and also I just want to point out that uh, if you look at the planetary boundaries by the Stockholm Resilience Center, replacing nitrogen fertilizer um, in and of itself is one of the most important thing that we should do because of the contamination that we have, even apart from the CO2 emissions. But um, let's talk with Ramadan about Drip AI. You argue that your hydro panel um, is able to absorb the moisture from the air. And the thing that makes it so special is that it is completely passive. So it doesn't need external uh, energy input, fans and stuff like that. And you argue that it's cheaper than utility prices. So uh, maybe you can contrast a bit further how a classic hydrogen panel works and how your approach is different. Okay, thank you, Marina, and thanks for the Ranko and Collins. So uh, let's talk about the hydro panel first, or the atmospheric water generator, how it looks like and how it works, very simple. So uh, it's like a device can pull out the moisture out of the air, then it can give it to you as a liquid water. So based on this, 
uh, based on the technology inside this device, we can classify the technology into like generations. So the first generation of the technology uses the condensation methods, which very simple. When you take a bottle of water out of the fridge, then you can find some droplets of water around it. Then if you have some uh, cold coil inside and you just put some coolant inside, then you pull the air inside, you will take all the water inside the air and convert it into liquid water. But unfortunately, this is a huge consumption energy to produce the water by this method. Uh, second techniques, we can call it like generation two or second generation of this technology that we can use some materials who can harvest the moisture out of the air passively. Then we can combine it with any other heating methods to just take water, take the, the water back again, and then we can condense it and take it other water. But still again, also, you still need to put the energy back again to just take out all the water you have harvested over the night or period of time. So uh, based on this, there is no choice because if we understand the water physics, we can see that the water can be exist in three phases. It could be ice as a solid or liquid or a gas. To just move it from one state to another state, you need to put some energy or take out some energy. This energy is a huge. It can cost around 700 watt per one kilogram of water, which makes the price for one cubic meter of water more than $100. However, you can pay on your home like $1 or $2 or $3 only. So that's why we came in to fill this gap that we can develop some new device which can take the moisture out of the air with some very smart and noble materials which able to harvest this moisture out of the air without any energy inputs. And these materials are combined with a very innovative solar system which can only use the solar power to get back all the water you just absorb over the night so this is in general how it works and how it's smart okay so if i understood you correctly like the first phase of these uh, in innovations were condensation methods and the second yes. phase were using materials plus he uh, heat to yes. um, get the water out of the materials and your you have a different kind of material, so you have a material innovation and you're using yeah. solar energy uh, combined, right? Exactly, exactly, yes. Okay, cool. Um, well, let's get to a quick fire round. So there are a lot of questions that I have and the way that I cram them in um, is to ask you three to answer with a thumbs up, a yes, a somewhat and a no, and of course you can use this dial uh, and yeah find anything in between okay we will have four company related actually it's statements because statements are easier for this method okay. so um regulation is an important issue for our company three two one okay we have two for whom it's very important. Our product will be easily accessible to smallholder farmers. Three, two, one. Yes. We already have patents on our technology. Go ahead. Oh, really? Wow, cool. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, the business angle lends itself to developing patents. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so then some um, more personal questions. 
I have noticed that it has become significantly harder to raise money. Semi, yes, okay. I'm more stressed in 2023 uh, than in 2022. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's just so interesting, so insightful. It has become easier for me to find talent. No, well, we have a no here. Oh, that's so wildly differing for you. You, you seem to have very different experiences there. Um, and the last question, due to the economic downturn, I had to adapt my pitching style and strategy significantly. So this is specifically of like how you pitch to investors. Not at all, semi no. Oh, but Brendan had to, okay. How, Brendan, how did you have to adapt your pitching style? Uh, so I think in general, we started to rely more on the business case of like how this is actually going to generate huge numbers and the, that we're applying this to massive markets and talk less about the climate outcome that we're working on as well. And so more focus on the business model and go to market strategy than just the grand vision of, you know, this is how we solve climate change. There's also a question of low hanging fruits that I have, and um, I'm first going to uh, direct it to Franco. I've researched that you probably by now more, but um, back then had already 500 different extremophiles in your research set and database. And I'm wondering whether, because there, there's, there are so many possibilities for different benefits, what are the benefits that are most easily achievable with extremophiles um, currently? Yes, well, that number is um, outdated. I, I won't mention the, the, the exact number is not of several thousands by now. Um, wow. But actually, actually, extremophiles are currently already widely used. Many people won't know, but the PCR test that we use for COVID during the pandemic uh, uses an enzyme that comes from an extremophile from Yellowstone. And they are also widely used in industry because of their capacity to tolerate different levels of pH or temperatures. What we did and our main innovation is to be the first ones that are using these types of microbes towards agriculture and towards developing a more sustainable and resilient agriculture. So what I see and what we see in the company as the low hanging fruits within that space is actually on nutrition. But then we also know that we have a lot of opportunity in finding novel, even novel uh, genes and novel pathways to develop a lot of different capacities such as uh, biocontrol, such as biofungicides, not only made out of the bacteria themselves, but actually on the metabolites that the bacteria are using in order to fight these uh, pathogens. So I think that the, the low-hanging fruit overall is to expand this research, not only obviously on our extremophiles, but overall on novel uh, mechanisms and novel microbes, because sometimes nature already has uh, the solution of the questions and the problems that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um you were studying Lapuna very uh, in detail. Is there some other kind of strain of microbe, uh, some other phenomenon that you don't have the capacity to work on, but you think there should be much more research or startups looking into uh, something going on there? So we started in, in Lapuna region, but actually we have done prospections in, in different uh, countries and places. These are called kind of biodiversity hotspots. And there are different biodiversity hotspots. Um, for instance, sometimes you want to tackle soil remediation, like 
mining, for instance, and you can go to places, for instance, volcanic areas where the presence of heavy metals is actually huge and there are microbes that have to survive on those really hard conditions and have to actually recycle these polluted or these contaminants. So there are actually um, a lot of value on, ex on basically exploring these biodiversity hotspots and finding applications in terms of soil remediation, in terms of antibiotics, in terms of uh, actually uh, cosmetics or pharma industry can learn a lot from, again, solutions that nature has already developed. Yeah, so exciting. Well, to round it off, maybe you have a request for the investors listening, something that you would wish them to recognize or, or be aware of. That's your chance from founder to investor to give a little hint. I just say that we have all seen the, the reports on the overall um, BC industry and, and all, all, we all are well aware of the macroeconomic uh, conditions. I am absolutely all in for rationalizing investments and making things that will uh, you know, have a, a real impact and will create real businesses. We, um, the solutions that will really change the world will necessarily have to make a lot of money at the same time. Uh, because if not, we're not going to reach the impact that we want. So my ask is actually to take this into account and say that we don't have much time to really solve the effects that we're bringing to the world, to really solve and try to get the main solutions for climate change. So I don't think this is now a time to uh, back off and start slowing down investments. Actually, I think that it would be a smart to all the contrary uh, push more because the solutions will be more and more needed and maybe at the time that they are needed, you will say, oh, I wish I had started investing on this a couple of years ago. So my yeah. goal is to really uh, not slow down. There's a, still a huge opportunity ahead. Mm -hmm. Brendan, what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree with Franco. Um, like, keep investing in deep tech. Uh, I think there's this fear that a lot of deep tech solutions got a lot of investment, um, but in this tougher funding environment, they're gonna that's going to trickle down, and a lot of really promising technologies are going to stall out because of that. So keep investing in deep tech, and there will be huge payoffs as we go into this climate future. And Ramadan, if you also want to add some closing thoughts. Uh, yeah, for the VCs, I think uh, if we have one solution now, definitely we have lost thousands because of late investments, like uh, not on time investments. We have many great founders. We just need to link the people together and just to encourage the young people to come by the crazy ideas to solve our nowadays problems. Unfortunately, we will have to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much, all you three, Ramadan, Brendan, Franco, for sharing and for working on topics which are so important for our future food. Adaptive agriculture is a hot, not just a hot trend, it is, a, it is an absolute necessity um, for the increasing extreme weather events that we will be facing. So with that, let's get back to the rest of the program. <laughs> thank you so much, everybody. <laughs>